From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. On today's show, we have Alan Rusbridger, former editor of The Guardian. He's here with us to discuss the future of journalism in the digital age and some of the most important moments in his career, including the audacious decision to publish Edward Snowden's revelations back in 2013. In his new book, Breaking News, The Remaking of Journalism and Why It Matters Now, Russ Bridger fights for the soul of journalism in the social media age. We'll hear from Alan what has been lost in this information revolution and what has been gained. We'll also discuss how the U.S. Constitution protects investigative journalism and what it's like to work in the U.K. where the First Amendment doesn't exist. Alan, thanks very much for joining us today. Welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here. One of the major themes in your book that I wanted to start out with is the contrast that you draw between horizontal and vertical news dissemination patterns. Can you describe what you mean by this? Yeah, well, for most of history, certainly until... um, 10 years ago, and certainly for the last two or 300 years, there was a thing called a printing press. And if you own one of those, then that gave you an extraordinary position in society. You had an almost unique method of distributing news, and people had to buy your product, and that gave you a very marked sense of what your role was in society as somebody who had something that other people didn't have, and you would hand it almost literally down to them, and they would hand their money up to you. And that was how the information society was arranged. Obviously, not just information. Many many bits of society worked on that vertical assumption. And then, obviously, what has happened in the last 10 years, really, is that billions of people have become connected and able to publish and distribute and share and contest and challenge and discuss material. And I think of that as a horizontal world. Uh, and these two worlds uh, are, um, have very different kinds of arrangement, very different assumptions of how society works. I think we want to come back and discuss all of the implications of the horizontal arrangement. But I just wanted to talk a little bit more about your analysis of what the existing or the status quo was in terms of journalism. I was struck by a passage in the introduction where you say, Our generation has been handed the challenge of rethinking almost everything society's had for centuries taken for granted about journalism. And I just wanted to follow up and say, what does this mean exactly? And what had we taken for granted for centuries? Well, we took for granted that we were the people who were the gatekeepers of information. And now, obviously, we're not the only gatekeepers. And some people don't believe in gatekeepers. And they think, well, who gave you the right to be the people who would sit in a judgment? And how do we know that you're all the things that you claim to be ethical and accurate and so on and so forth? And it's quite difficult if you were used to the vertical world and the assumptions that went along with it. And I have to say, it was a very nice life. That was most of my career. It's very difficult to adjust to a world in which billions of people have a different kind of assumption about how information should be exchanged. One key part of that change has been the issue of trust, which you talk about at length in your book. Can you talk a bit about how that trust has been eroded in journalism? Well, I mean, it's a tremendously complicated issue trust, but there were for years there have been surveys and polls which indicate that people don't trust journalism very much. 
But back in the vertical days, nobody really had any other options. And relatively few ways of challenging whether journalists deserve to be trusted. But now, you know, many people have access to the same sources of information so they can discover whether what we're doing is deserving of trust. They can talk amongst themselves and expose the failings of journalism uh, and hold it up to ridicule or correction. And this has led to even lower levels of trust in journalism with journalists really scrabbling to address this collapse in trust. Do you have any ideas about how that trust could possibly be restored? It seems to me that the easy book to have written would have been to have slagged off social media and to say that it's hateful and it's exploitative and it's filled with fake news and ignorant people. And that is part of the truth of social media. But there are ways that people interact on social media from which I think journalists could learn much about how trust in the 21st century is won and established. And a lot of it is to do with transparency. All the things that many journalists, not all, but many journalists are rather bad at are ways that people win trust in the 21st century. They don't say, you must trust me because I work for this organization, or you must trust me because I have a certificate that says I'm a proper journalist. It says you must trust this information because I'm going to show you the source of it, or I'm going to show you the screenshot, or I'm going to send you the link, and I'm going to allow you to contest it, and I'm going to respond to you. These kind of techniques of trust in the 21st century are ones that some journalists find it quite hard to adapt to. So the, I hear you talking a bit about the sort of feedback loop between journalists and their audiences. And I wanted to just talk more about the role that you played, which is that of the editor. In the social media age where information is spread horizontally, do you see anyone playing that editorial role? And who should or, or can play that role in the social media news environment? In the context of history, we have to remember that everything in social media is about two minutes old. One of the problems about the debate that we have at the moment is that everybody expects companies like Facebook or Google to solve everything by next Monday, you know, as though this was a simple problem to be solved, and it's not. And you've got a reticence in companies like Facebook to adopt the role of editor. You know, that's not how they conceive themselves as companies. And obviously, the moment you start acknowledging that you are a publisher with editorial values and editorial obligations, then along with that come all kinds of legal and ethical considerations and cost considerations that maybe you never thought of yourself as having. So the new world is coming to terms with this business of editing at the same time as the people who are experienced editors and have had that responsibility adapting to a new world of different expectation. It's a fascinating time, but it's also a very uncomfortable time. And what do you see are the drawbacks of having Facebook play that editorial role? Sometimes I have interesting conversations with these people who say, well, do you really want us to do that? I mean, you think we're monopolistic and grotesquely powerful already. It's an extremely complex problem to try and solve if you're thinking of a company that operates in however many countries it does. Let's call it 150 different cultures with different norms, uh, different legal systems. So to expect this one company with 2 billion users to instantly and overnight come up with 
a form of editing that is going to not destroy the precious things about free speech that have sprung up in the last 10 years is, I think, unrealistic. But I do think these companies have behaved in an arrogant and um, unresponsive way and could benefit from actually talking to journalists who have been thinking about a lot of these problems for centuries. It's interesting that you brought up the challenge of exercising this editorial control with a news outlet that spans a variety of different legal environments and countries. And this is something that you confronted in your own career with The Guardian, working primarily in the UK, but also extensively in the US and in other countries. And in the US, obviously, we have the First Amendment that protects the freedom of the press in quite robust terms, but that doesn't exist in the UK. Can you talk about what the challenges were in terms of running a news organization that had to operate in these different legal environments? What was the impact of the different legal structures on your work? It's a complex problem that existed far less in the past. I mean, there were occasions when, you know, we would be sued in the Irish courts or the Italian courts or the, um, I remember being sued in Zimbabwe once. And there was an awful lot of forum shopping where people would use the harshest and most restrictive legal environment in which to launch actions against newspapers. The flip side of that kind is the one that you've hinted at, which is actually you can do a different kind of forum shopping and say, well, the First Amendment is one of the most robust protections of free speech anywhere in the world. And we could avail ourselves of that kind of protection and Certainly when it came to Edward Snowden and we got to the point where the British government intervened very forcefully to prevent us from publishing in London, it was a relatively simple matter to flip the editing over to New York and to benefit from the kind of protections that American journalists have and which British journalists don't. Well, that was a very interesting juxtaposition that you highlighted in your book in terms of the decision to publish the Snowden revelations. And while your hard drives were being destroyed in the UK, you were having an ongoing dialogue with officials in the United States as you were publishing these these materials. What were those conversations like when you're talking to the White House and to intelligence officials as you're disclosing the Snowden revelations? I think America is generally a more open society uh, in its handling of information and its attitude to the press than Britain. And in Britain, there was no question that an intelligence agency would sit down and discuss a document with you. If you you ring up GCHQ, the equivalent of the NSA, and say, look, we have this document. I know you, you wouldn't want us to have it, but we do, and we're planning on publishing something. The typical response of British intelligence would be to say we can neither confirm nor deny that that document is a genuine document and we don't want to discuss it. Whereas the Americans typically would say we don't like you having that document but let's begin a conversation because there may be some things in that document that would put people at risk if you were to publish so let's have a sensible grown-up conversation about the risks and context of such a document. That was a process that began when we worked with the New York Times on the WikiLeaks stories, but it came into sharper focus with Snowden, in which we were working with a newspaper that routinely would uh, engage with intelligence agencies in the White House in that way. And after those grown-up conversations where, even in the U.S., presumably these intelligence officials were encouraging you not to publish at least some parts of the, the information that you had, how do you weigh 
their instructions and their guidance against the public interest and your responsibility as a journalist. How do you make the decision whether to publish or not? Well, the answer is document by document. I think you listen to the government with great respect and to the, to the agencies. You talk to other experts who may have a different view of the significance of a document than the, than the government or the agencies. I do think that you have to take it as a given that journalists do have the right to reach a different decision about what's in the national interest or the public interest than the government of the day. And if you have a problem with that, then you probably shouldn't be a journalist. I mean, you just have to think back to the days of Nixon and the Pentagon Papers and Daniel Ellsberg and the fact that there you had a, as it were, the Edward Snowden of his day, a whistleblower who leaked a fantastic amount of top-secret material about the conduct of the Vietnam War. Well, now nobody, I think today would think that Daniel Ellsberg was anything other than a hero. But at the time, it was claimed that this was an an act of traitorousness, of treachery, and the American government said this was not in the national interest to be published, and they went to the Supreme Court to try and prevent it from being published. So you have got conflicting notions of where the national interests lie, but if you believe in a free press, then you have to believe that an editor has the right to uh, draw the national interest and the public interest in a different position from the government of the day. And it seems like you argue pretty forcefully that these types of conversations between journalists and intelligence officials is the way that things should be done. But is there also a risk? I know that some in your field would disagree about the idea that journalists should be consulting intelligence officials at all about disclosure of intelligence materials. How do you respond to those types of criticisms? Well, I think it depends on the material that you're working on. The material we were working on was highly secret, and we wanted to be as responsible as we could about conveying what we thought was the public interest in this information without you know, driving a wrecking ball through the ability of the intelligence agencies to do the job that we would want them to do. Uh, And that's probably done best by having that conversation. Now, of course, there is a risk that you could become compromised or that the silver tongues or threats of the intelligence agencies or even the president could persuade you that you shouldn't publish. An example of that was when the New York Times didn't publish the story of warrantless wiretapping in the George W. Bush administration, and they held off publishing for about a year until the authors of the report went off and wrote their own book, and the New York Times then uh, had to publish it. I think the editors of the New York Times at the time would now concede that actually They were mistaken in hindsight to be persuaded in those interactions not to publish that material. And you also face criticism from the other side saying that you didn't weigh the government's interests enough. Uh, And I'm thinking in particular about the backlash you faced from others within the British press. Can you talk a little bit about the reaction from your peers? Well, people will always draw the line and different places, and that's only to be expected. But of course, you know, the government of the day and the agencies would draw far rather you didn't publish anything. So that's where they start. 
and there will be individual journalists and members of civic society who would draw the line and say, well, you know, I think that's in the public interest, that's not. What I couldn't really understand was the journalists who said, literally said this, they wrote articles saying, if the British government asked me not to publish something and told me it was not in the public interest to do so, who am I to disagree? If you have to ask that question, then you haven't thought deeply enough about what journalism is because that's what governments always say. And do you think history has vindicated your decision to publish those documents? Well, (laughs) I think it could be like the Chinese statesman who said it's too early to say. He said that at the French Revolution. I mean, we don't know, but I think the revelations that Edward Snowden wanted to bring into the public domain, I think most people understand that they were of tremendous significance and that the sky didn't fall in when it was discussed. And I think in some countries, Britain being one, actually the the agencies have got exactly what they want through open discussion. And I've had discussions with intelligence agents uh, saying, well, actually, I don't really like what Snowden did, but I've got to admit this was a debate that we had to have out in the open. I'm interested in talking a little more about Edward Snowden, who actually is a client of the ACLU. You talked in your book about his decision whether or not to release the information directly by posting it online, presumably, or to go through a traditional media house, which he ended up deciding to do. But this was not necessarily an obvious choice. Can you talk about what you think would have happened had he decided not to use a traditional media house as a vehicle for his disclosures? In the horizontal world, anybody can publish. So WikiLeaks is both a sort of whistleblower, a publisher, a source, and they've decided that they can just publish some stuff themselves. Um, That's one model, and Snowden was very different. He could have published himself, but what he did was to contact very legacy media organizations, The Guardian and The Washington Post, and say, look, I'm not sure I feel comfortable making decisions about what should be published, what's in the public interest. So I'm going to do a very traditional thing and hand this to journalists and ask you to make those decisions. And he carefully picked the journalists he thought could be trusted to write knowledgeably and responsibly about these issues. And after that, he played no part. He had no role in any of the editing decisions. And that seems to me a rather remarkable thing to have done. Well, maybe somewhere between the traditional media houses like The Guardian and The New York Times that you mentioned, and on the other end of the spectrum, you have WikiLeaks. There are a whole host of other types of organizations that are sort of straddling new media and old media. The example of BuzzFeed comes to mind. Thinking for a moment about the decision of BuzzFeed to published the so-called Trump-Russia dossier in January 2017, many of the traditional media houses criticized this decision to publish because it was essentially raw intelligence that had not been independently verified by BuzzFeed. If you were in that position to make that choice, would you have published? Well, I, I confess in the book that I hopped from foot to foot on that one. So I was no longer editing at that point. I was just a civilian reading the press. And so to begin with, I thought... Well, would I have published because the the classic argument is, you know, that's the difference between a legacy media organization and the internet, that that what we do is to work out what's true and what's not true, and, and we publish what's true. 
And then I found myself swinging the other way and saying, how dare these media organizations sit on this material when they were publishing all kinds of other stuff about Hillary Clinton. And, and yet they had this smoking gun document which they didn't trust their readers to know about. And so when BuzzFeed published, and I have to say I think they could have published it better, but nevertheless, I was quite grateful for BuzzFeed. I thought, well, this does get you into the argument about who was the gatekeeper and why could not we be trusted with this information to uh, make our own judgments about it. As I say, as a reader, I'm grateful that this material is out in the public domain though I can perfectly understand editors who decided otherwise. How could they have published it better, as you say? Well, I think if you publish a document like that, which has got all kinds of material that you've simply no idea whether it's true or not, I think you can go to great lengths to give some sense of what is known about the information within it, but also a better sense of what you know about who commissioned it, who wrote it, who has seen it, where it has been discussed, in what circles has it been discussed, who's been allowed to comment on it. There's an exercise in contextualization that would help the reader make more sense of it. The book highlights the fact that there is a rapidly changing media landscape that's moving almost too fast to recognize. If you had to look a few years into the future, what do you think is on the horizon? What do you think your next book will cover? You could answer that question on a sort of technological level and talk about AI and how AI is going to change journalism and the development of the big tech companies. But I guess I'm more interested in really the tension between journalism as a form of public service, which I think at its highest it is, and journalism as a commercial model of the sort that's existed for the last 200 years. So if your main purpose in producing a newspaper was to make 20% margins and keep shareholders happy or keep proprietors happy, that would, to some extent, determine the kind of journalism that you did. If we're now in a stage where increasingly we find it hard as a society to say what is true and what isn't true, but we also recognize that societies that don't have a factual basis for discussion in terrible danger, you need people who look like journalists, but the market may not provide them. Then I think you're reimagining a different kind of public service journalism, and you then have to have different discussions about how that is funded and what the corporations or other entities that provide them look like. So I think that's going to be a huge discussion over the next five to ten years. Well, thanks very much, Alan. I really appreciate your time and your insights. Thanks so much. Goodbye. Thanks very much for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, rate us, and tweet at ACLU with feedback. We appreciate your input and we'll be sure to read every message. Till next week, peace.